the end of a somewhat long journey uh, as we've been journeying through the book of Revelation in the Bible's New Testament. When's the last time you actually read the book of Revelation? Put your hand up and be honest. Yeah, that's what I thought. You say, what's a revelation? Okay, is the last book in the Bible. It's the strangest book in the Bible for sure. Very odd, very unusual when you read it. Uh, and most of us, we don't know what to do with this book, right? We, we, we do one of two things. We either put on our, our scientific code-breaking glasses and we try to interpret the book and we try to say, well, this image means this and this image means that and this symbol, it means this code and this symbol means that code and now we know who the Antichrist is and now we know all of these things and we've got it all figured out and we know when Jesus is coming back and you know we know who Donald Trump is and we know who Kim Jong-un is and... This is the code breaker mentality, right? Or some of us, we don't even read it at all. We say this book is filled with dragons and abysses and resurrections and white horses and violence and it just put it down. It has no practical value for my life. I would argue with you that both of these views are wrong and they're too extreme, they're too far off. Somewhere in the middle is where you wanna find yourself, uh, but it helps when you put yourself back in time. And you remember that the book of Revelation did not have a 21st century audience. There was no CNN when the book of Revelation was written. There's no Fox News. There's no MSNBC. There wasn't even the internet. Wow. So back then, you know, you've got a, you've got a man who's exiled to an island off of what is now called the area of Turkey. And he's exiled because of his faith in Christ. And he's writing to seven churches, again, what is now modern-day the Turkey area. And he's writing to them to try and encourage them because the Roman Empire is putting pressure on Christians and pressure on this church, this, this new movement, this new community that is starting to spread. And again, we've talked about, you know, whether or not the emperor was a fellow named Nero or the emperor was a fellow named Domitian. There are different views on this. Regardless of your view of when the book was written, there's pressure and persecution being put on these first century believers. And so this book is a really weird book in that it's an apocalypse, fancy word, doesn't always mean the end of the world. An apocalypse means you would peel back the curtain and you would see what's behind. If I could lift this movie screen and see what's behind, you'd be surprised. There's a huge, huge speaker back there the size of an apartment building. There's a bunch of ladders and things that they don't want you to see, but that's an apocalypse. You peel back the curtain, you see what's behind. And so in that kind of literature back then in that time, Apocalypse is often talked about the future. They often talked about the conclusion of history. Usually it was violent. Uh, and they often had no writer. This one is very unusual for that time in history because we know who the writer is, and he boldly identifies himself as none other than John the Apostle. This would be the same John who wrote John, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. That's one of the weird things about it. Another one is that it contains prophecy. It contains predictive prophecy, i.e. these things are going to happen at some point in the future, so the writer proclaims. It's weird to have an apocalypse 
mixed with prophetic literature. And then it's even weirder because it's addressed to seven different churches, so it's also a letter. So it's a very, very weird uh, kind of an all-dressed pizza of different styles of writing. This is what we read when we pick it up. This is why it has all these bizarre images in it, because that's the way apocalypses were written, okay? So we're at the end of the journey. And those of you who are coming in for the first time, you're thinking, wow, I mean, revelation, that's, that's I don't know, that's, that's quite a subject matter. We're right at the end. This is part eight. So if you want to catch up, go to our website and connect the, the connect tab will take you to sermons they're all there you can listen to them over and over again we're doing it in a very unorthodox fashion in this church in big chunks so we've done them three chapters at a time and today we're going to do four we're going to do revelation 19 20 21 and 22 so i've asked the people in the corridor to put the lock on the door and bar it you cannot escape. You will be here for the next four hours. Those of you who are new, welcome to our church. Now, you'll never escape ever. Just kidding. I'm reading it, and we're looking at it in big chunks because that's the way that it was read, friends. It was read as a big, massive chunk, even, even if you could read. Back then, even if you could read and you had a copy of this thing, you were better off than most. A lot of the time, they would hear it. It would be recited to them. So it, we're, we're in a different day today. So I try to challenge people. If you're going to read Revelation, read it in big chunks and go for the big overarching theme of what the author is trying to say. It's not that complicated. So Revelation 19, 20, 21 and 22, uh, and, I, and I've been arguing that this book is more relevant than ever. Uh, this book, because of the time of history that we live in, because of the rapid changes that we see in history, because of the rapid technological change, because of the persecution of, of the church worldwide, I'm not talking North America, I'm talking around the world, there are a lot of similarities to the present day as, uh, that compared to the, the first century audience that was being addressed here. They were being persecuted a lot more intensely. Uh, in some ways than some places in the world today. But there are places in the world today where you cannot do what we are doing right now. If you try, you may get arrested, you may get thrown in prison or worse, or you know things will happen to your family, etc. And here we come, we gather in a public place, in a movie theater of all places, and there's absolutely no one stopping us. This is not reality for other places in the world. And it wasn't for them back then. And so you, when you look around the world and you open your eyes to what's really going on in a global sense, the book has a tremendous relevancy uh, in this day and age, arguably more than it ever has before. So last week we looked at um, Revelation um, 16, 17, and 18, I think it was. And we talked about the question, is God really uh, fair? Is he really just, I'm just going to pull it up on my phone here if you permit me to look down for a minute. And is God really fair? Is he really just? And, and we looked about this whole, this whole question of, wow, this is a violent book. I mean, there are, there are depictions of hell in this book. And there are people who are going there in this book. And you say, this is a very angry, violent, 
God we're talking about? Like, is he really fair? Is the way that he meets out justice um, just? And, uh, you know, the old question, how can a loving God send someone to hell? I don't know if you ever asked that or been asked that. And we talked about a few answers to that question, if you'll skip to the next slide there. So uh, people have an awareness of, of eternity. Uh, people can't hold the card out that says, well, I never knew or contemplated that there was something beyond the grave. We, we inspected that view a little bit and saw that it's kind of faulty. Uh, people do have a sense, an awareness that there is something on the other side. This is why, this is why religion is so popular, because it attempts to explain what we don't know much about and what we speculate about. So to, to argue that, well, God, I didn't know. I didn't know that there was anything after the grave. You never even you know, gave me a chance to think about such things. This really is not an easy position to hold. Uh, we do have an awareness of eternity uh, in many ways. Um, we also, if you'll go to the next slide there, my phone is, is a trifle slow. Um, we have the ability to choose, don't we, between rebellion and repentance. And we see this in the people in the book of Revelation. You see this, this huge amount of people who refuse, the Bible says, to repent. And they're clearly exercising their choice to say, no, we're, we have no interest uh, in, in serving you, God. We have an interest in serving whoever it is, this beast figure that we see in the book of Revelation or themselves, but they refuse to repent. They exercise their will to rebel against God. And we also see in the book of Revelation alone, not even speaking of the whole Bible, the, the message of salvation continues to be preached even in this time that we see described in this book. Even though you have a mass amount of the globe, we, we can presume, who is unrepentant, yet still the message is being declared that there is a God and that he wants you to repent quite simply in the book of Revelation. And, and so we can't argue, well, 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 I never heard, I never heard. Uh, you know, we said, well, that's the church's job, right? We're not here to, to form some sort of club. Uh, the church is in, in the world for a reason, and that is to declare the message. So this idea that, well, how can God send a, love, a loving God send someone to hell? Maybe the question should be, how can we refuse him when he has presented himself to us? How can we continue to resist him? We talked about maybe the table should be turned on us a little bit. So to get to Revelation 19 to 22, I'm going to make it so, so simple for you today um, because we could be here for hours. I mean, I could do another 10 weeks just on these four chapters, but I'm going to make it really, really simple. When you look at these, at these chapters and you look at kind of the Coles Notes idea uh, what's really going on here? Revelation 19, you see a conclusion to this huge period of time, many say a seven-year period of time, where the, the wrath and the justice of God is poured out on the planet. And this would presumably be a time in the future. And you see in the book of Revelation, it comes finally to a conclusion in chapter 19. And we looked in chapter 18 of the fall of, 
of what was called Babylon in, in the writer's language, and he's referring to Rome. He's referring to the Roman Empire, certainly of his time, but perhaps to another type of, of system that will arise in the future. Uh, we talked about that last week, and in Revelation 19, you see the, the statements of praise to God because that whole system is defeated, and it's quite prolonged. Um, we didn't even talk about it last week, but the, the battle of Armageddon is at the end uh, of chapter 18, and, and it's floating around in 16, 17, and 18. We often talk about the battle of Armageddon. Have you heard that term before? You've seen the movie with Bruce Willis from years ago? Okay, so the battle of Armageddon in the book of Revelation is really a, kind of a small part of the book. Uh, we accentuate this as if it's a huge part of the book. It's really mentioned very casually in a very, very small way. It's one of many things. But there are these armies uh, that are gathered at this place, Armageddon or Megiddo uh, in the Middle East. It's a big, big valley. Um, and, and we see in, in the previous chapters that the armies of the world are gathered there to make war. And then this Babylon system is defeated. Presumably Rome would be what the author was referring to. So then when you come into, into chapter 19 and you see there's this tremendous statements of praise and rejoicing and thanking God because this justice has come. And we talked about how the previous chapters are quite R-rated. Uh, they're extremely graphic. They're in some ways difficult to, to even read uh, on a Sunday morning, you know, pleasant church setting. They're really, really graphic. And then you see all of these statements, hallelujah, hallelujah, and salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And they're rejoicing, really, the people depicted here over the defeat of this whole system, Babylon, a.k.a. Rome. And they're praising God and they're rejoicing. And then you move through the chapter and you see this incredible image of Jesus returning physically to the earth. This is the second coming of Christ. So I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True in Revelation 19. With justice, he judges and makes war. Wow, it's very strong. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself, and the armies of, of heaven are following him, and we're told he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress, the old, uh, they used to press wine with their feet in these huge, huge vats. Uh, he, he treads the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. Wow. And on his name, on his robe, there's a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a reference to Jesus. And he is going to bring it complete end to this battle of Armageddon and the whole tribulation period. It's very, very violent. You can read it yourself in Revelation 19, and he ends it, and he ends it with his second coming. And he takes uh, these characters that we've met before, the beast 
and the false prophet, right? Presumably this is the Antichrist and his vice president, as it were, and no reference to Mike Pence there. Uh, just for those of you who don't like, you know, the current president, I'm not suggesting that at all. Uh, and he takes them and he throws them into this place called the Lake of Fire of burning sulfur. It's very, very violent, and it's a violent conclusion uh, to this whole period of time. Say, what's this got to do with my life? I'll tell you in a few minutes. So then you see in Revelation chapter 20, after Jesus returns to the earth in this way, in this very, very graphic, very, very violent way, there is a period mentioned there of a thousand years. Uh, sometimes we call this the millennium. All right, and if you're a futurist like me, and that means I believe that this will take place in the future, I'm not a preterist uh, that believes that this all took place in the past. I'm a futurist, so any preterists in the room, you know, uh, we agree to disagree on that one. Okay, just just those of you who who are interested in this, preterism is a more popular view than futurism. So the idea that all of the Book of Revelation takes place in the future. This is not the most popular idea in the church worldwide. The most popular idea in the church worldwide is that most of this or even all of it has already taken place. All right. I would disagree with this, but regardless, there's still something to learn. So if you're a futurist, you see this period of a thousand years. It's referred to several times at the beginning of Revelation chapter 20. You say, what's this got to do with my life? I don't care. I'm falling asleep. Just hold on. I'll tell you in a minute. So you see, you see this thousand year period come in and you see Satan himself is locked away in this prison, this abyss for this time. And you see this, this incredible time of peace come upon planet Earth for this period of a thousand years. And it goes by really, really quickly in terms of how many verses it takes up in the book of Revelation. It's very, very fast. Uh, and you see that, that Jesus is reigning and ruling on the Earth. But really, the description is quite short. In the beginning of Revelation chapter 20. And then when the thousand years are over, you see that the devil is released one more time from his abyss and he organizes one last war against God. Uh, some say that Russia is, is going to be involved uh, in this war. They're speculating, of course, but some say this. And they, they try to surround the city of Jerusalem and they are destroyed very, very violently. And the, the devil is thrown finally into this place, this burning sulfur, this lake of fire. Uh, presumably, this is hell. And then you see a judgment that is, that is made by Jesus himself uh, of all of the dead who do not serve Christ. You say, what's this got to do with my life? This is really putting me to sleep. I'll tell you in a minute, okay? But I want to give you the Coles notes, okay, very, very fast. Um, and so you see this judgment, this period of judgment that happens in these people who have rejected God or thrown into the same place that all these bad characters have been thrown, the, the devil and the beast and the false prophet and all of this is very, very graphic, is very, very violent. And then in Revelation 21, you see this new Jerusalem come down from heaven and the new heaven and the new earth comes. And you see this image of a bride and a groom and there's this wedding banquet that will take place and everything is going to change and everything is going to be made new. And then you see a description of this, this city as it's called, and it's 1,400 miles wide and deep and high like a cube. 
YouTube and you read this stuff and you see the description of all of its majesty and all of these, these jewels that are used to, in its design. And it's just really, really wild when you read all of these things and you see the, the scope that takes place in these chapters. And then in Revelation 22, the final chapter of the Bible, you see this picture of the river of life. And the, the tree that's in Eden is now open, and, and there's no more death, and there's no more, no more sorrow, and there's a whole new existence. We call it the eternal state in theology. And this is Revelation 19, 20, 21, 22. You say, what's this got to do with my life? I mean, that's really nice that you give me the Coles Notes version, and, but I mean, you're putting me to sleep here. This sounds like a classroom. I've got three questions for you to make it relevant for you uh, in your life. Number one, do you really believe this stuff? Do we really believe it? I mean, if you, you read this book, Jesus coming on a white horse from the sky with the armies of heaven following him. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that there's going to be an antichrist and a this and a that? And you really believe that there's a hell? Do you really believe all this supernatural stuff that you read? I mean, we give lip service to this in, in church settings. But I just wonder if we actually do believe that Jesus is even coming back. I don't hear much talk about it. When I talk to Christians, they don't talk about it. They talk about other things, and I talk about other things. Um, and I question even myself as a preacher, do I really believe that Jesus is coming back? Even the preterists believe that, okay? If there's any preterists in the room, they believe Jesus is coming back, or maybe they believe he came back at one point, but they, they have a sense of that, of the coming of Christ. But do we? Do we really believe it? And I, I ask that question to myself and to you today because it seems to me that this has become a kind of an accessory, an option in our whole way of thinking about God. It's sort of a, well, I don't know what to make of this. I mean, 2,000 years of church history, and it seems like he's not coming back, and why would that even be necessary? And look at all of this stuff. Like, am I really expected to believe this in the 21st century, or is it nonsense? Or maybe I've misinterpreted it totally, and I'm, I'm reading it wrong. Maybe I'm just not intelligent enough to figure it out. Like, does it really mean anything? And let me tell you, friends, uh, from, my, from my own personal uh, story, how important it is that you wrestle with this question. I do not approach as a Christian nor as, an, as a pastor anything that anybody says to me from a position of faith. Okay, So I am a skeptic. Uh, and, and I don't, uh, you know, I just am. I, I don't say that with pride or humility. I'm just telling you, I am skeptical just kind of in my wiring. So maybe you relate to me today, and maybe you, you hear this, and you're like, I, I don't know if I believe any of it. Okay, well, I'm with you on that. All right, and when I when I first became a Christian and I started hearing all these stories and people taking the Bible literally, you know, I was like, how am I expected to believe this? This is nonsense. And probably the people who believe this and take this literally, they're probably very unintelligent. They're probably very uneducated, or they just want to believe it so badly 
they're so emotional and they're, they're looking for a crutch. They're looking for something to lean on and that's why they choose to believe this. But nobody in their right mind can actually believe that there's, these stories are true. I mean, it's ridiculous. Okay, that was my approach uh, to, to the Bible. And uh, it took me quite a while to see that approach change, but it did change. Um, and let me just explain to you as briefly as I can how it changed and why it changed. When you approach this book and when you approach the Bible and you look at something as intimidating as the book of Revelation, especially these last four chapters, and you try and reconcile the idea that Jesus Christ is actually coming back to this world. Okay, the Bible does not call you to, to, to prove this. The Bible does not call you to wrestle with this and to try and find a way to convince yourself that this is happening. But let me tell you what the Bible does challenge you with first and foremost. The reason why the Bible gives you the second coming and the justification for the second coming is the first coming. So what the Bible challenges us with and what we sang about today is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is the justification that the Bible would argue that gives us reason to believe that he will come again. If he came the first time and if he rose from the dead, then we have reason, the Bible teaches, to believe that he will return. So what you're called to do is to, is to understand and be confronted with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the first thing. And when I began to realize that, and when I began to say, okay, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that should be an easy one. I mean, that should be easy to disprove. I mean, for that matter, you know, the Bible shouldn't be a difficult thing to disprove from an intellectual standpoint. It should be relatively easy to shoot down. I mean, I come from a, from a science background. I don't, I don't approach matters of faith with emotion. I approach them with science. Maybe you're like me. So I began to, and this was as a believer, by the way. This was after I became a believer. I started to challenge the Bible from an intellectual standpoint. And so I started looking at this and say, well, what are we going to do with this? Let's see if we can find a way and let's find a leg to stand on to disprove the resurrection. You know what I found? I found the opposite to be true. So here's, here's the, the, the very brief way that, that this happened for me. I began to see that the Bible was a book that told a story about this supernatural God. Clearly, I mean, there's so many instances of the supernatural in the Bible. You go from creation, you know, in Genesis to Revelation, you've got the supernatural all over the place. That means you've got things going on that are of a miraculous nature. You know, you've got Moses parting the Red Sea. You've got manna falling from the sky. You've got Jonah in a whale. You've got Jesus multiplying bread and, and fish and, you know, raising people from the dead and making blind people see and making deaf people here and it's, these are clearly told to us as being supernatural things as miraculous things but the problem with them is that they're nested in reality they're not nested in fantasy so you can go and visit the places today where Jesus allegedly did these things 
you can go and visit them. You can go and look at the backdrop of the Bible, and you can find many, many points of tangency with the whole backdrop of it. So you can go visit the places. You can study the customs. You can see the leadership. You can see the political scene. You can see the religious scene. You can see the geographical scene. You can see even the topography is described rather well in the Scripture. And I looked at it and I said, oh, wow, this is interesting because the natural part of the Bible, you can, you can find a lot of points of tangency, not even looking at Christian stuff. Go and visit the Middle East and you'll see. So here you have this picture of a supernatural God who comes into history that you can, well, they got the history right. In many, many cases. And I found that it wasn't too difficult to prove that. It only took a little bit of reading and a little bit of study to say, wow, look at all the points of tangency in the natural story. Okay, well, so I'll just disbelieve the supernatural. That's all. The na- they may be right about the natural, but they're wrong about the supernatural. Stay with me for a moment. And then uh, I began to see, okay, well, if you're going to disprove the supernatural, if you're going to say, well, yeah, maybe Jesus stood on that shore and I could go and visit that shore, but he didn't multiply anything. Okay, well, you've only got three reasons that you can find to hold that, that position. Do you know that? There's only three. You can say, well, the story changed. So, you know, the Sea of Galilee is, is a setting, and okay, that's accurate, but the whole thing of the, of the fish or whatever miracle you're looking at, it's rubbish because the story changed. Somebody injected it in later on. Some zealous scribe wrote it in. You got a 2,000-year-old piece of literature in there. So they squeezed it in, and then it got copied. And, you know, these people are so unintelligent that they just put it in, and they started copying it, and everybody believed it. And now everybody believes it today because we're all foolish today. Well, I found that that didn't hold any water. Because of, the, of the, the amount of time required for that to happen and the amount of, of uh, uh, manuscripts and what we call bibliography in, in that whole study. There's so many of them and they appear so early that you can't say that the story changed. It's a very weak card for you to hold if you're a skeptic like me. So I said, oh, well, I can't really prove that the story changed. Well, but the people who wrote it down, they must have been seeing things, you know. They must have been smoking too much magic mushroom in the first century. I mean, they, they can't be intelligent people who wrote these stories down. I mean, there must be an exaggeration that's taking place here. But then as I, as I read the stories themselves and read more of the Bible, I realized, well, these people don't appear to be that dumb. Uh, you know, they don't have university degrees, but they seem to know the difference between reality and fantasy, these people. And they also seem to write very embarrassing things about themselves, uh, recording even their own shortcomings, recording even things that Jesus said that are rather disturbing. So are they really exaggerating? And I found, boy, that's a weak card to hold if I'm going to disbelieve the Bible. Well, maybe the story changed. No, that one didn't work. Well, maybe the story's an exaggeration. No, that one didn't work. Well, maybe it's just a flat-out lie. And they just lied and they just made it up. And, you know, the story of Jesus being raised from the dead, that's got to be a lie because no one rises from the dead. But then again, when when you look at that idea 
and you look at how long people can maintain a corporate lie, let me tell you, it doesn't last very long. Usually when people try to hold a lie in an organized setting, we have many people involved in the lie, and they're all writing about it, and they're all trying to sustain it. You know what happens? Somebody coughs up the truth. Somebody gets caught, and the lie goes down, and you see what the truth is. It usually doesn't take that long. Oh, and let's add to the fact that all these people who wrote these stories down were all persecuted for what they wrote. Many of them died violent deaths for what they wrote. Clearly, they believed the things that they wrote. And I ran out of options, you see. And so it came to a point where, where it, okay, if I choose to believe that the supernatural did not happen, in particular, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, if I choose to believe that that did not happen, when faced with the intellectual evidence and, the, and some of the historical evidence and the manuscript evidence and all this stuff that I could bore you with, when faced with it, you know who the problem is? It's me. It's my own bias against the facts. The facts are, my friends, that there was a dead man who was placed in that tomb, and three days later, that tomb was empty. And you cannot explain that away with a natural conclusion. You cannot do it. Not to mention the fact that he appeared to hundreds of people in the days that followed his alleged resurrection. And it is a very difficult thing to believe. Yes, I agree. But when faced with the facts, if you're honest, what you are doing is intentionally choosing to disbelieve because of a bias against the supernatural. And so I come to the conclusion of faith based on that. Not because of how I feel, because sometimes I feel good and sometimes I don't feel good. But I go with the straight data and with the straight facts as much as I can find them. So when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, which the Bible argues is the reason why we believe that he is coming back, this is why I ask, do you really believe it? What you're required to believe first and foremost is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If you can come to a place of conviction that Jesus rose from the dead, if you can stand alone on that, then the rest of it is certainly plausible. It's certainly plausible that he could come back supernaturally one day if, of course, he rose from the dead. Do you see how it all hinges on that? And this is what the Bible uh, argues. So do we really believe it? Number two, do we have our invitation? The Bible in these chapters refers to a wedding supper. They call it the wedding supper of the Lamb. Any of you ever been to a wedding? Any of you been to the reception that follows the wedding? So those are so much fun, right? I mean, people dance and people eat and people dance and people eat and people eat and people dance and sometimes they drink a little too much. Uh, but they go on and on and on for many, many hours. Uh, I did a wedding on Friday afternoon. You can go and look at the picture on Facebook, a young couple in our church. He's from Greece. She's from Haiti, or at least their descent is Greek and Haitian. Quite an interesting couple. And I married this couple on Friday afternoon, unusual, beautiful outdoor setting, did the wedding, and I did not stay 
before the supper because, of course, we had to plan the event uh, that happened yesterday. I'll talk to you about that in a couple of moments. But uh, they, they were getting ready for the supper, and they had a drone flying in the air taking pictures of the whole thing and a beautiful setting and beautiful layout. Back in this time, this wedding supper was a very, very significant thing. So briefly, the couple would get betrothed or there would be an arranged marriage. So it wasn't like today, you know, in most places in the world at least where, you know, the couple falls in love and they make a decision to get married. It was not like that back then. There was a betrothal process. You had the, you had the families get together and specifically the two fathers and there was an arrangement and there was a payment that was made and there was a legally binding agreement that was made and the couple was betrothed. Uh, Mary and Joseph in the Christmas story were like that. They were betrothed. And then there was this period of time that would elapse. Usually it was around a year. And the idea was that the, the, the groom was supposed to add an addition to the house that he lived in with his parents. He was supposed to extend it so that him and his new bride would have a place to live. And this process took some time, but in that time, the two remained separate, even though technically they were legally married, the two remained separate and lived separate until such time as the groom would come in to pick up his bride. And sometimes he would come without notice. Sometimes he would come at night. You remember the story that Jesus told of the people waiting for the bridegroom to come and some had oil in their lamps and some didn't have oil in their lamps. It's a Middle Eastern first century wedding image. So back then the, the groom would come sometimes at an unexpected time and presumably the bride would, would always be ready for that time to arrive. And there would be this huge, huge celebration. Uh, they called it the chuppah back then. Some Orthodox Jewish weddings, they still use a little bit of that today. It was like a big tent. And sometimes you see weddings that are done under a tent in a Jewish setting. And, and that would be a huge, huge celebration. In some contexts, the guests would actually wait, wait outside while the bride and groom went inside a, a, an isolated place there. And, well, for lack of better words, consummate their marriage while everybody was waiting outside. You say, wow, that's a strange, strange wedding. But the wedding supper of the Lamb, that was a big, big deal back then. And this is what John is writing about. And he's trying to say, are you invited to the supper of the Lamb? In other words, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Are you in a, in a right standing with him? Are you, uh, whatever term you want to use, are you born again? Are you saved? Are you a child of God? These, these kinds of questions all refer to the same thing. Do you have your invitation today? Are you uh, 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 saved, to use that Bible term, person today? And that's not something that you need to be afraid of. It's just something that you need to know. And we talked about this in Revelation 13, 14, and 15. You can listen to it online. How can I know that I'm a child of God? So do you have your invitation? And the last question, um, why? Again, why is the second coming so important? And this, this I really need to get into your head today. If you learn absolutely nothing in the whole series that we have done for eight weeks, I need you to really learn this one thing today. Revelation 21. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven uh, from God, prepared as a bride. There you see the image, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order. Remember those words. The old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. You must understand, because I believe that in many Christian circles, kind of by osmosis, we have allowed a kind of system of thinking about our walk with God. We have allowed a system to come into our heads that makes the second coming an accessory. It was not an accessory for these people who originally read these words because they understood they are living in the old order of things. And the problem today, I find, is that people struggle with the idea of God. Why, why, why? Is this happening to me? It's not supposed to happen to me. Why am I getting sick? Why is this problem happening? Why is this suffering happening? Why did I lose my job? Why are my kids rebelling? Why are these things happening when I'm a Christian? Good things are supposed to happen to me because I am a Christian. Why are bad things happening to me? Yesterday, at the end of the back-to-school bash, we had 350 people filled the place. I mean, it was like a sea of people. And at the end, a woman came to me with her, with her disabled son. He was a young adult, adult age. And she came to me, and she said, Pastor, I need to ask you a question. Why? Have these things happened to me? I have two severely disabled sons. They're both autistic. And my life, it, it's, it's suffering. And they are suffering. Why is this happening to me? If I'm a Christian, why? Please give me an answer. Why is it happening to me? And I said to her, I'm going to give you the answer, ma'am. I'm going to give you the answer as humbly as I know. And I looked at her and I said, I don't know. I don't know. And she, she was startled by the answer, as if the preacher should know, right? I said, I don't know. And she said, but I've had people tell me. I had a person tell me, because God is judging you, God is angry at you, God, you have sinned against God, and this is why. Because the whole message yesterday was about grace. Remember, we talked about grace a little bit in the message. And she said, maybe I'm being punished. And I looked at her and I said, do you like that answer? Like, is that a satisfactory answer for you? That you're being punished for your sin and that's why your kids are autistic? Do you like that answer? And she looked at me, she said, no, I find it to be a very nasty answer. I said, well, you're right, it is a nasty answer. And I said to her, nowhere 
Listen to me, friends. Nowhere in the Bible are we promised that in this life, all is going to go well for us. And because we're Christians, nothing bad happens to us. We're somehow exempt from problems in this life because we're Christians. If you told that to these people who originally read this book of Revelation, they would say, what planet are you from? Can we please go live there? Because we have problem after problem after problem. We're being persecuted by the Roman Empire for our faith. And yet you, you folks seem to have no problems. Or you seem to believe that you'll have no problems if you're a Christian. Well, we have nothing but problems because we're Christians. So where, where's the disconnect? The disconnect is that we want everything now that is not yet. We, we want this not to be true, this passage. It says the old order of things will pass away. This is a, clearly a future depiction. I mean, even the preterist is going to have to wrestle with this one. This is clearly something in the future because we all live in the old order of things now. Remember when you cried? Remember when that tear came down your cheek? Remember when you had to bury your loved one? Remember the time when you got sick or maybe you're, you're presently dealing with something? Do you know what that is? That's the old order of things. We live in that now. You say, but I'm a Christian. I have the Holy Spirit. I mean, we believe that miracles can happen. We believe all these things. Yes, 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 true. But all those things don't happen all the time in every situation. They will one day because Jesus is coming back. Do you see? And we live in that tension where we want the new now, but we live in the old in the present. And I look at this woman and I said, the promise that we have from God is that no matter what we may go through in the present, we have a connection with him and we can rely on him and trust him through whatever life may throw at us in this life but there is a future that is coming this is guaranteed to us by the resurrection of the dead there is a future that is coming where all things are going to be made new i remember when i did my first funeral i was relatively young did my first funeral and plotted through the ceremony this 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 senior lady's body in a casket next to me and closed the casket in front of the family and went off to the cemetery and laid the casket down into the ground and covered the casket. My first funeral, I was so, so nervous. I had learned how to do funerals from a great funeral preacher, Don Mann, who's one of the missionaries we support. And I watched him for years do funerals, and I shadowed him for years. I was like a shadow at funerals, you know? And then I did my first funeral. And okay, it didn't go too badly. And then I did my second funeral. And you know what? I started to see similarities. Say, wow, you know, it's a body in a casket. And close the casket. You do a service. You put the body in the ground. And then I did another funeral. And you know what? It was the same thing. It was relatively similar. And I did another one and another one and another one. And I've, I've done funerals for children. I've done funerals for infants. I've done funerals for people who are pushing 100 years old. And I started to notice 
hey, there's an order, there's a system in life in the present. People are born, people live, and then people die. And I looked into the pages of the Bible and said, hey, the Bible talks about this order of things. People cry, people get sick, people suffer sometimes in life. And I looked into the pages of the Bible and saw, aha, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead guarantees that he will come again. And when he comes again, this old order, my friends, is going to be overthrown. It's going to be overturned. You guys and, and gals who are, who are, you know, you're aging a little. You're further along in the game than some of us. You know, we got multiple, multiple ages. But some of you, and you're a little older, you're like, yeah, yeah, I know that old order. I know that old system. I'm waiting for that old system to be overturned. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm waiting for the day where I do not have to bury the dead because they won't die anymore. And this is what Jesus is going to bring. But do not, do not think that you're always going to have it easy all the time in this world because you're a Christian. This has penetrated our thinking and this, we really need to alter this. You need to understand when God does these things, when he does these miracles, when he does these signs, when he does these wonders, these are a foretaste. These are just a preview. These are just a taste of what is going to come. And he does not, does not, does not do them all the time in every situation at our beck and call. We cannot conjure him up at our own, our, with our own magic prayer to make him do something. He does it by his grace, he does it by his sovereignty, and he does it by his mercy, and those things are a mystery. That's why I said to that woman, I don't know. There were two people who contacted me yesterday, and if the band would come, and we're gonna, we're gonna close in just a minute. There are two people who contacted me, one by text, and they said, they, they simply wrote back the words that I asked for yesterday, and they said, I prayed. I prayed, so I've responded to that person. Another person called, and they left me a phone message, rather lengthy phone message. And uh, the person spoke in French and sounded Arabic, had an Arabic name. And the person left a message, and they said, I wanted to call to thank you for your smiles that you had yesterday and thank you to the volunteers who smiled <laughs> through the sea of people, uh, especially those who worked at that, that, that table where you're handing out the school bags. You know, some of the behavior from some of the people was, <laughs> was you know, a little tense. Uh, but thank you for doing that, and thank you for smiling. This man called me, and he said, thank you for your smiles. Thank you for the gifts that you gave to us. Thank you for the message that you gave. He said, I want, you, I want to let you know that I prayed yesterday. And I want to let you know that I asked God to forgive me for my sin. I said, God, forgive me for my sin. And he repeated it over and over again on the phone message. He said, I wanted to thank you. And he left his name. And he left his phone number. And so I'm going to contact him and, and see what I can do to help him along in his journey. My friends, do you have your invitation? Do you understand the power of Christ's resurrection? Do you understand that the second coming is going to change everything? Do you understand that we live in a present order of things? Learn to trust God even through the bumps and even through the valleys of